Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. As you know, in 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada changed the criminal code, effectively legalizing medically assisted dying. They gave the government one year to change the law. The deadline was June 6, 2016. As we try to understand what this all means and how we, as people of life, can respond, I did a series of interviews while I was in Edmonton, Alberta, as part of a series titled Every Life Matters, hosted by Edmonton's Archbishop Richard Smith. Today, I'd like to share with you two of these conversations, but first, here's part of a conversation that I had with Edmonton's Archbishop Richard Smith about all these end-of-life issues. Suffering in and of itself, we would not say is a good. No. We as Christians, and it's, it's highlighted in this particular year of mercy in which we now find ourselves, yeah. are called always to reach out to the suffering, to those who are in need, in genuine, authentic acts of mercy, mm-hmm. and where possible, therefore, to alleviate pain and suffering and to give people yeah. hope and new life and all of these things. Um, and, and so when we're not in the midst of that, we can talk about the need to alleviate suffering, but also when, when suffering has to be encountered, how do we understand it from a Christian perspective? Mm-hmm. And, and truly, we do understand the possibility of suffering being redemptive because Jesus made it so. Jesus came, he entered into the reality of pain and suffering, uh, even to the point of an agonized death on the cross, but in all of that offered it to the Father for the sake of the world's salvation, Mm -hmm. for the sake of the world's redemption. And the Father answered that self-offering by raising Jesus from the dead. So that suffering that Jesus offered to the Father became redemptive for the world. If we then, as followers of the Lord, conscious that we live in a vital union with Him, Mm -hmm. unite our suffering with His, and together, through, with, and in the Lord, offer it to the Father, we know in faith that the Father will answer Mm -hmm. and he will render it salvific, redemptive uh, for the life of the world. That was part of a conversation that I had with Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton in April 2016. After speaking with Archbishop Smith, I had two very moving conversations. The first was with Lisa Daniels. She's a young mother who suffers intolerable chronic pain. Lisa spoke with me with her doctor, pain management specialist, Dr. Robert Hopman. After I spoke with them, I spoke with Chuck and Jerry Marple, the parents of a beautiful young woman, Mary, who lives with cerebral palsy. They speak about quality of life and finding meaning in suffering. Those are both coming up. Remember that you can always listen to all our programs at our website, saltandlighttv.org radio, and you can always comment by reaching me via Facebook or Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. Let's now go to my conversation with Lisa Daniels and Dr. Robert Hopman. Our two guests are two people for whom the issue of pain management is very personal. Lisa Daniels, welcome, and Dr. Robert Hopman. Now, Lisa, you suffer from chronic pain. I do. Um, and, and Dr. Robert, you're, you're her doctor, but maybe we should start with a little bit of your story, Lisa. How did this pain issue begin for you? I actually um, had lost a great deal of weight, and it was after that 
that I just I developed back pain, mm -hmm. quite uh, debilitating back pain, and. Um, but it just sort of started. It just started, yeah. Do we know what caused it? <laughs> well, that's the thing. A lot of time, these types of things can just develop somewhat out of the blue and a bit insidiously, so it just gradually comes on in patients. Almost always there is some sort of event, so, you know, potentially massive weight loss around stress, sometimes okay. uh, accidents, trauma, and all these things can lead to a chronic pain problem. Um, in but Lisa's the, case, I think it really just kind of gradually gotten worse and worse and worse. Okay, so it began with back pain, mm -hmm. you presumably went to the doctor, and then what happened? And then I started to get treated for back pain. Mm -hmm. I started to have injections of um, cortisone. Okay, so, and sorry to interrupt, but when you say pain, and maybe, because I suppose there's different thresholds. I mean, I have back pain too, but I don't right. need injections. So was this debilitating? When you talk about pain, like you can walk, you can stand up, you can function. It was um, hard to get out of bed some mornings, mm -hmm. and mornings are the worst because I was all stiff. Right. And uh, it just seemed to get worse throughout the day. Right. And, and these, in, sorry, and these injections would be what sort of medication? There's many things you can actually inject, but in Lisa's case, they were corticosteroids uh, that were being injected um, to try and disrupt some of the pain pathways, so to give her some relief where right. we felt her pain was coming from. And you'd be able to administer those injections at home, or you'd have no, to go like, No, no, um, it's done through diagnostic imaging. Okay, and then so I'm assuming that it didn't get better. It helps. Um, it only lasts about three months, and then you have to okay. keep doing it. Okay. Um, and to be fair, you know, just to kind of maybe intervene with this, yeah. you know, I think Lisa, you know, as, as you go through her story, it's been such a long journey. Usually with people like Lisa, they start off with something that's a bit more acute as an event. And rather than get better, like going back to your point that, you know, you get back pain, well, we know 80% of the population gets back pain at yeah. some point. Yes. And, you know, like most of the population, Lisa went through standard therapies. You see a physio, you do right, exercise, you get exactly. anti-inflammatories, but rather than getting better, as most people mm -hmm. do, she went on to have daily debilitating back pain. And that's when we started to look at expanding her treatment options at that point, right. because it wasn't going away. In fact, what we now know with chronic pain patients is they often rewire the pain system, it becomes hypersensitized. So now you have an ongoing continual input from her lower back that right. isn't improving over time. Okay. And to be clear, um, sorry for interrupting yes. me for a second, <laughs> but we call somebody with, who has a pain disorder, we, we say they have chronic pain when they have pain that lasts longer than yeah. six months. Right. So most people will resolve in that period of time. Unfortunately, in this case, it didn't resolve. Right. So then at some point, were you diagnosed with any particular condition or is this just kind of like chronic pain that we don't know what it is? I was told I have arthritis in, the, in my SI joints, okay. which is part of lower the back. lower back, and um, fibromyalgia. Yeah. Fibromyalgia, yeah, okay. As a secondary diagnosis. Right, yeah. and so that causes pain. Generalized pain as um, well. Does, does it cause any loss in mobility or anything else, or are you...? Um, I try and stay active. Um, yes. It's difficult sometimes. Uh, sometimes it helps, like I find yoga helps because mm -hmm. it's the stretching. Mm -hmm. um, 
Mm -hmm. Now, and, and, and so you said that there was no one event, or has there been an event since that original back pain that kind of made it worse? I actually was in a car accident um, this okay. past June. Okay. Um, my car flipped three times, and I was pinned um, in the car mm -hmm. on the side. And uh, so my whole left side was um, kind of hurt. Right. I had some cracked ribs, concussion, hmm. um, rotator cuff injury, and uh, my arm was really bruised. And then about a month or six yeah. weeks after, I woke up and I had um, lost feeling um, kind of in my arm, and my wrist just kind of hung. <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, So you'd lost use of your left arm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was determined that I have radial nerve palsy. Uh -huh. Okay, which is why I, I see you, you're wearing yep. a brace. <laughs> right, do you ha have you recovered any of the motion? I have a bit use? more feeling in my fingers. Yeah. Um, but nothing from kind of my elbow to my wrist. Right. Now, would you consider, and I suppose you can jump in here, uh, would you consider to be someone with a disability because of your condition? I don't really consider myself to have a disability. Yeah. I have some health issues, mm -hmm. but um, I find if I think of myself as having a disability, uh, it's not a very good mindset no. for me. No. I think that's a valid point. I mean, Chronic pain is not a choice, and I, and I just want to kind of step back a bit just to, to just talk slightly about chronic pain so you kind of understand yes. the breadth of this. That's 20% of the global population has chronic pain, and we understand that to be changes in the nervous system when people develop chronic pain. It starts with an injury, mm -hmm. and rather than the system turning off when the injury heals, they continue to generate pain because of changes in the nervous system. So it's always a cause, okay? It's, so we, but we call that now a chronic pain disorder, secondary to you know, back pain, mm -hmm. secondary to fibromyalgia, but yes. secondary to a work-related injury, but it's still chronic pain. And that affects about 20% of the population, like I said, so one in five people, very, very common. But again, going back to the point I was gonna make, Chronic pain itself, not a choice. How you live with chronic pain is, of course, is a choice. And I think this is the point Lisa makes, and I think it's a fundamental point. Yes. You know, the attitudes we take around chronic pain can affect how we experience that pain. Mm -hmm. For sure. And you know, you will always have some pain from that rewiring, that chronic signal that's being generated. Even now, I can tell you that if we ask Lisa, is she in pain? She will tell us she's in pain. But the intensity of that right. pain can so much be modified by our emotions, by, by our stress. You know, we talked about this somewhat earlier, off air, you and I, by our spirituality, yes. you know, and, yeah. and, and how we approach that as well. Yeah, so right now, <laughs> I was gonna ask you, well, right now, how much pain are you in? But how are you, so right now, how are you managing? Your, there's medication, there's obviously, you mentioned yoga. Right. There's your choices that you're making every morning when you get out of bed. That's right. I, every morning, choose to be happy. Yeah. I choose to um, look at the small things in life and it improves my mood a great deal mm -hmm. when I choose to do that. Yes. Um, were there, sorry, were there times, I guess, where, you, where that was hard and yes. you were 
you know, depressed. Yes. And I mean, I'm not going to lie, it happens sometimes still. still. Um, earlier on, it was very hard to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter's disabled, so I mm -hmm. was limited in the transferring I could do in her personal care. Mm -hmm. And so that was difficult for me. Yeah. Um, but I've kind of worked through that and yeah, been better well, for it. Yeah. <laughs> is, 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 is the work, the work that is not, I don't even know what to call it, but I was going to say that is not physical, that is not medicated, is that also through the help of your doctor? Are you helping your patients with dealing with that emotional, spiritual, social pain? Yeah, or you let, just you let Lisa do that, right? <laughs> Answer that question. I mean, she knows, she knows how I, I feel about this, and I can talk to, to my approach to it, but I, I suppose from a personal experience, Lisa... I, um, like I mentioned in my speech on Tuesday night, um, when I started seeing Dr. Hopman, he let me know that I would always have some form of pain. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just take a pill and get rid of all of my pain. Mm -hmm. I needed to focus on other things mm -hmm. as um, like secondary to medication to kind of control the pain. Yeah. So whether it be, you know, taking a long hot bath or meditating mm. or um, taking my dogs for a walk. Yes. Just anything to improve my quality of life. Mm -hmm. In a sense, the health of the brain. So, you know, when I look at chronic pain, I, I, I see that there's two main forms of therapy we use. One are, are the medications, which fundamentally turn the volume down of this sensitized nervous system but then there's these other forms of modalities that help to actually heal the brain a bit to right. make the right. brain function healthier like Lisa was talking about meditation prayer um, exercise proper nutrition um, choosing to live choosing to engage yeah. in your community again these are all so important in in helping people with chronic pain move forward with their lives and successfully treat it too it really does successfully treat the condition can you manage all pain, or can it get to the point where there's nothing you can do? You know, I, I've been doing chronic pain now for 20 years, 10 years in a specialty practice. I have found very few people, very, very few people, that we can't help to some extent. Mm -hmm. The more buy-in we have with the patients, the more successful our management. But to be fair, that's the same of virtually any other disease we deal with. If you get a diabetic who has no buy-in in terms of diet and mm -hmm. exercise and taking care of themselves, I can give them all the insulin I want and we're not going to be optimally managed. Right. So the more buy-in I get from patients, yeah, we can help them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, are there unusual circumstances where people are left to live with unremitting pain, you know, I, you know, I suppose it's always possible, but I haven't seen a lot of that. You know, I've seen a lot of patients come into my office who are not doing well, who are, are basically bound to their homes, stay in bed most days, they say that their pain levels are 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 20 out of 10, mm -hmm. and after 6 to 12 months, they're functioning again. They're right. managing better. Okay. They're, they're, um, they don't have zero pain, but they have reduced pain and right. they have a better quality of life. 
What's the cost like? Uh, I guess I don't know if, if it's covered by healthcare. How much money you're spending on and yoga? So she on pays meditation. me under the table um, <laughs> every time she sees me. But I, I mean, is it, can it get to the point where it's? It can, like for example, Botox is very helpful um, in my back. Yeah. However, it's not covered under any health plans, no. um, so it's, it's very cosmetic. costly. It's considered cosmetic, like what? Well, it, it doesn't have an official indication, and unfortunately, yeah, the way, really? when it comes to coverage of medications, it's often decisions made by insurers who yes. unfortunately sometimes look at the bottom line rather than what we're doing in practice. Mm -hmm. So some insurers artificially say if there is no official indication, despite the fact that many of us in the pain world would use a, mm -hmm. uh, a medication for whatever condition, like Botox for some of our pain, yeah. they'll say because it's not officially indicated by Health Canada, we won't cover it, which is a shame because it, it is an effective therapy. Many of the drugs, the pharmaceutical agents that are kind of advancements in the pain area are also not covered. Now, the, thankfully, some of the ones that Lisa on, is on right now, are, most of them are covered. Most of them are covered. Yeah. But um, there are other, many other agents that we use that still don't have coverage. So that does put some burden onto the patient. Yeah. Does it, does it place a burden on the medical system? Uh, do you see any costs to, to I guess, the, the province, I guess? in terms of dealing with people. I mean, I don't know yeah, if it's, I think it's fair to single out yeah. people that suffer from chronic pain as opposed to any other disease. Well, if, if you look at any disease, there's always direct and indirect costs. And to yeah. be honest, direct costs for chronic pain are not huge. But if you take direct plus indirect costs, mm -hmm. the cost to the Canadian healthcare system is over $50 billion, which is actually higher than cancer, heart disease, and diabetes combined. So the total economic cost to chronic pain is more than cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. But sorry, because of the indirect costs. So the loss indirect of loss of productivity. Um, family members sometimes have to have out. So a lot of the costs are more indirect than direct. There are some direct costs like medications and right. injections-based therapies. Um, if they if they choose one of the better forms of treatment for chronic pain is mm -hmm. psychological services. We use a lot of right. cognitive therapies, and psychological services are not covered, so there's a personal cost to the patient as well. Mm -hmm. But the larger, the lion's share of that is indirect cost. Yeah. Now, you're, I think, fairly young. You, you have a young family. You have a husband, a daughter. Um, and not to say that would it make a difference if she was older or closer to, I don't know, I don't even know what, or, you know. Um, are you able to work? Do you work? Um, I did work up until my car accident okay. in June, and I'm still off work right now. Okay, but you could work? Like, yeah. that's still an option for you? Yeah, I was working part-time Yeah. Um, before the car accident. Yeah. How important is it for patients for, that suffer chronic pain to actually be engaged and doing... You know, I, I say to everyone with chronic pain, you have a job, and that job is, is taking, you know, full care of yourself. Yeah. And full care of your family and engaging in society. And if you do all that, and you have some left over that you can contribute to a job, fabulous, because we do have data that people who actually work have a better quality of life, yeah. um, have better socialization. There are some real positive aspects to working. They actually usually do better financially. That being said, a lot of people with chronic pain, it's a, it's a job to, to take care of themselves mm -hmm. and to look after themselves, and they really don't have a lot left over to do productive, competitive, consistent employment. Mm -hmm. The, the uh, of course, you know, I mean, we're talking about end of life issues and I don't, I mean, I don't see this as an end of life issue. You, you're yeah. living, 
I think fairly well, I don't know, you know, with, with, with a condition and with help and support. Um, but there's a reality that the options in Canada are, are changing. Um, one of the, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you, the, one of the, the, the wording that's used is irremedial, irremediable suffering. Is your suffering irremediable? I mean, your pain, can it, I mean, right now, I don't know, can it get to the point where, I mean, is it going to get better? Does that mean that it's irremediable? Well, I mean, and I can jump in, you know, yeah. if you want. I mean, from my point of view, I mean, irremedial suffering would be persistent, you know, constant suffering. And you could make that argument Which is... that a person with chronic pain, well, we, we don't in 21st century medicine, we are not curing people with pain. No. They are still going to be left with suffering. And quite frankly, some days they're going to be left. There's, there are days, I'm sure Lisa can attest to this, where the pain is, is not unbearable. well managed. Yeah. It's, it yeah. can be unbearable at times. And when you carry that you know, cross for years and years. That can be that irremedial suffering. And, you know, we talked again off camera about this. This is a great fear of mine as a pain consultant that people are going to look at things like, you know, physician assistant death as a way to deal with chronic pain at times, um, which I think would be sad. Particularly, again, you know, you know, when people hear, particularly when they come to me, people come to me in my pain practice as kind of the you know, the mecca here. I'm going to go and see Dr. Hoffman. He's a pain consultant. He works in a tertiary care pain clinic. He's going to take all my pain away. Mm -hmm. And when I tell them I'm not, that's a real blow. You're going, to, you're going to have chronic pain for the rest of your life. And a lot of my patients break down when I tell them that. I'm going to work with you. We're going to work together. We're going to help your suffering. But I'm sorry, I can't cure your chronic pain. So when pain. we say that all pain can be managed, that doesn't mean that you can cure get them. rid of it or get cure of it. it. And that, at that point is where a lot of people can initially, I think, you know, lose it and feel like, what's the point? Why should I go on? And the way the Supreme Court of Canada decision is, you know, at that point, particularly if there's no cooling off period, which no. we now know this is being debated, whether there should be one, theoretically somebody could come up to me and say, hey, Dr. Hotman, I can't live with this. If, if you do not have a cure for me, I want you to end my life. Okay, I, I want to hold on to that because I want to ask you about that. But first, I mean, it's a quality of life issue. Would you say that, that it's a quality of life issue? I mean, I, I, again, I don't, from what I know of you, I would say that you would say that you have a good quality of life. Right. Can it, can it, is it that patients say, well, my, there's no point in living because there's no quality in this life. Fair enough. I think the point I was trying to, to, to make, Deacon, um, to go back, if you would have asked Lisa the same question when she first met me. So when that patient comes in to yes. see you for the first time, and, and they're coming in with the expectation that you're going to cure them, and you as a pain consultant say, I am not going to cure you. You will have chronic pain for the rest of your life. That can be a real hard message. Mm -hmm. But the good news I think you're pointing to is I think that that's not what they have to live with. I think, you know, Lisa's a great example. She's one of my heroes, as far as I'm concerned, of somebody who has taken the message of what you can do to change your life. And faced with a lot of adversity, she's been able to move forward and show, hey, you know, you can live with chronic pain. You can have a good quality of life. But to get to that, it took us... It, it took a long time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it was a blow when I realized that I couldn't just take a pill and have the pain go away. Like Dr. Hopman said, yeah. I was expecting that to happen. And um, so it, it took a, a while, like I would say probably a good six months before I um, 
realized that I needed to do some work as well mm -hmm. to manage the pain. Yeah. And some of my fear, of course, is in that fragile period of time when things seem a bit hopeless, where they hear some of this messaging, is again, if there is a, you know, somewhat of a push here, well, why don't I just end it? Right. Because you know what I can now. I'm competent. I have an irremedial disease that causes yeah. suffering. It's not curable. And the Supreme Court of Canada says I can. Yes. And I would, again, my point that I made earlier that I guess it didn't really go anywhere about age. If, if you were dealing with a patient who is 80 years old, that they're closer to, well, I've already lived my mm -hmm. life. What's the yeah. point? You know, I'm closer to dying anyway. Why not end it all? Have you had patients? I mean, I suppose you have patients telling you, can you end it all? Yeah. But have you had patients ask you for that? Absolutely. You know, um, oddly enough, it's often the younger population. Really? Um, and maybe, to be fair, they see it because here I am in the middle of the most productive years of my life, and I can't support my family. I can't right. be a good wife or a husband. And they see it more devastating. Oddly enough, somebody who's 80, they want to work with me. You know, they, 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 they are more than happy a lot of times. I don't get as much requests with people coming in saying, I just want to end it all at mm -hmm. an 80-year-old patient as I do with a 40-year-old patient. Do you feel that once the law changes that there's going to be more pressure on you to go against your own beliefs and conscience to refer people or to, well, I guess you wouldn't do it, but to refer them? Yeah, I think, I think that, that that is a, a real potential fear. Um, there's a lot of you know, discussion around these end of life things and all, even the protections that they theoretically want to prove in, which mm -hmm. I, because they don't think are yeah. uh, good safeguards. They're saying, no, you know, we shouldn't have a cooling off period. It doesn't matter what age you are. You may have heard this discussion now that, you know, they're saying that why are we arbitrarily saying 18 year olds? Why not 14 year olds? And, they're all, yeah. and these types of things. Um, I, I personally though, and I've been very strong about this, um, and I've made it publicly clear that I will never refer for physician assisted mm -hmm. death, even if, for some reason, my professional body says that I will have to. I will not, in mm -hmm. you know, even that is just too much against my own personal conscience. Not only as a as a as a as a as a as a person of faith, and and I do have a, a, a strong faith, as you know, but I believe that there's you know, medical issues here. My profession has always been a profession that's upheld life mm -hmm. and has been there to ease mm -hmm. pain and suffering. Ending life is not easing pain and suffering. And ending someone's life is not a treatment. I mean, think of any medical yeah, of course. textbook. Yeah. You know, they don't say, hey, if you have bad COPD, you do, which is uh, emphysema, part of me, yes. do this, 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 and, and if, if that, that doesn't, doesn't work, work, you can end yeah. their life as a treatment option. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And one of the things that's often um, left out of this discussion of end-of-life uh, discussions is the fact that this was kind of put on the medical profession when none of us really asked for it. No, no. You know, they, you know the court said, hey, yeah, patients have a right, but why should physicians be the ones doing this? I, I think this is a real yeah. problem. How would your relationship with your doctor change if this was on the table? Do, would you feel less comfortable going to the doctor for help? It's an interesting question. But I know that it's, it's, a, it's a fear. People have already expressed that fear. But here I have a patient and her doctor. Right. Um, that's not something that I would be asking for. No. Um, I have a great deal of faith as well. And um, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, how, well, I guess the question is, how hard would Lisa work, or how hard would I work to get her better if that's an end-stage option? Yes. You know, some of my pain patients have taken me two to three years to get them better. Mm -hmm. um, lots of sweat, lots of tears, even Lisa's journey. Yeah. And if, you know, and maybe I, I say at some point, you know what, you know, I've tried for three months, heck, it's not working, I'm not going to try anything else, let's just offer, you know, Lisa, you're suffering, let's just, let's just end it, you know, mm -hmm. you're burning on your family, you're burning yes, on my practice, the fear, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, you're always phony and complaining, that's just, you know, so I think there is a point there, yeah. you know, when that's yeah. not an option, I'm going to do everything in my power as a physician to help my patients in their mm -hmm. journey. Of course. It's never going to be an option yeah. for me. Um, we, we're very close to, to the end of our time, but I want to not leave without maybe letting you, for people who are out there who maybe are watching, who are suffering, who are maybe suffering alone, you, you have a family and support and a great doctor, not everybody has that. What would you like to tell them, Lisa? That they're not alone. Um, you know, for the first six months after um, I started seeing Dr. Hopman, it, it was a rough go and I had a tendency to kind of shut out family members. Um, but then I decided the more people that are aware of my situation, the more support I could have. And that it does get better if... Um, I found if I have a positive outlook and I make that choice every morning to, you know, be happy but besides the pain, um, that, you know, others can do that as well. And we're very glad that you do every morning make that choice. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your expertise and for the work that you do. Super. Thanks for having me. Lisa Daniels chooses to be happy despite, you know, um, some, some trying circumstances. And Dr. Robert Hopman, who is a, a family physician and pain consultant, and um, he helps people like Lisa. That was a conversation I had with Lisa Daniels and Robert Hopman in Edmonton in April 2016. After speaking with them, I spoke with Chuck and Jerry Marple. That's coming up soon. Remember that you can always listen to all our programs at our website, saltandlighttv.org slash radio. And you can always comment by reaching me via Facebook or Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. A few months ago in Edmonton, I had a series of conversations with various people about end-of-life issues. All these can be found on the Catholic Focus program on our website, saltandlighttv.org. The last of these conversations was with Chuck and Jerry Marple, the parents of Mary, who has cerebral palsy. Tell me about Mary. Tell me about what she's like, Jerry. Well, she's a very, very happy kid. You know, like she, she, Mary doesn't have any behavioral problems. She just, she can't walk. She can't talk. Okay. She's in, she's tube fed. Mm -hmm. uh, she hasn't actually been hospitalized for about the last, maybe two days in the last 14 years. Her first beginning of her life, she had a lot of issues. Okay. She has two shunts in her head. 
So, okay, so that's married today. So she, 17 years ago, she was born premature. Tell me about that, uh, how that came about. Well, uh, it was Christmas Eve, uh, well, the 23rd of, of December. All of a sudden, I had gotten all these things done at home with the kid, for the kids and all that. And I went to bed, and all of a sudden, I felt uh, uh, something's wrong here. This sensation went through my body, and I realized that I was... I, I checked myself. Blood, it was, yeah. I, was, I was like massive red blood. I phoned my doctor. They said, get to the hospital. We got to the hospital. They did an ultrasound. They said, Mary uh, is 25 weeks. And I said, no, she's not. She's only 22 weeks gestation. They said, well, you know, you're hemorrhaging too much here. We're going to have to send you to the Royal Alec. So they sent us to the Alec. And uh, they were trying to stabilize me, hoping that okay. I would... Uh, that you could continue the yeah, pregnancy. Yeah, and then I would have probably been hospitalized until right. it was over, but as it turned out, as the night went on, I, it, it wouldn't stop. So they said about 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, that next morning, Christmas Eve, they said, okay, you know what, we have to take you in for a cesarean because, you know, the baby will, will, right. will, won't survive. But at this point, after she was born, you, I mean, she was premature, but you didn't know that there were any other issues. No, because uh, she was born perfectly for her size. Everything, you know, she was perfectly, you know, what a 22-week gestational baby yes. should look like. Right. Right. And everything was good. They took her to the NICU. She had, you know, she was attached to all the machines that machines. they attach all these babies to. And, uh, but when she was two days old, she had a massive brain hemorrhage. And that, okay. and then... See, when Mary was first born, before I went into surgery, they said she had about a 50% chance to survive that surgery, of just surviving at that age. Okay. And then, two days later, when she had the brain bleed, they said to us, she has about a 5% chance to live. Because they right away suspected, like, because her blood pressure just dropped, mm -hmm. and they, the first thing that crossed her mind is, she had uh, a brain hemorrhage. Yeah. And so yeah. they scanned her, and sure enough, that was the case. Right. Now, but Chuck, at that point, I mean, obviously, you're, you're pro-life. You, you, she's your eighth child. You've always been open to life. You, you, had, your, you had a brother with a disability as well. Um, you're, uh, that was not a choice for you. Did you feel any pressure from the medical system to, well, to not intervene? Or, or? I had made it clear, actually, from the very beginning that, you can't take a direct action against life. That we were uh, more than willing to look after Mary, whatever the case mm -hmm. was. I was told by doctors that you know that she was going to have very severe problems after she was born, after the brain bleed, and uh, so they suggested that we just pull all of the, the tubes and stuff and just let her go naturally. Yes. And uh, I said to them, "Well, what I would like is that I don't I don't want to you know you're beating her heart to keep her alive or things like that." But my goal here is that you do whatever you would do naturally in this NICU. So whatever you do for every other baby in here, you do for Mary. And if Mary lives and she gets out of the hospital one day, she'll be my responsibility and I'm more than willing to look after her. So I said, that's all I ask. I ask that you do what's normal for a baby in the NICU. And if Mary lives, and God has wanted us to keep her. If she dies, then I accept that he called her home. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of how I had put it to them. Yeah. And they, and they after, after about, Mary was up there for like three, four months. And after about three months, one day, it just kind of dawned on me, just kind of like a light bulb went on my, in my head. And I, was, I said to one of the nurses, I says, you guys never ever thought Mary would live, did you? And, and she actually said to me, no one thought Mary would live. 
like it was really quite miraculous that she did survive all this, you know, but, you know. One of the things for me as a father, same for all of my children, uh, the idea that a father's job is to protect. Yes. And uh, I told them from the beginning. I read every chart. I went home and read, looked up stuff on the internet. I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know everything I could. I spent as many hours with Mary as I could. I said the rosary with her every day. I prayed with her. I, we had a little shrine on her thing. We, uh, uh, we brought the kids when we could. You know, uh, As soon as I could hold her, which was about a month of age, I held her. They told me I couldn't hold her very long, that she would get cold, and then they kept taking her temperature, and as I was holding her on my chest, she kept getting warmer. Yeah. And because it was just, uh, and, and it, so those things were, she knew right from the moment mm -hmm. that she was loved, and I think that's why she lived, I really honestly do. In fact, her pediatrician has told us a number of times that, you know, Mary lived because she was loved. Yeah, you told me earlier that she, so she can't walk, no. She's not verbal. No. She can communicate. She, she I'm can sure. make noises and um, she yeah. can call you can in a sense of right. Like she shows frustration by, you know, like her own little screaming voice. Yeah. You yeah. know. Yes. And you know, like if she does, like, like if she gets agitated, if you're agitated, and yes. she senses those things. Yes. She, Is uh, she has she had to have surgeries or any other medical interventions in the last 17 years? Well, when she was three, uh, because Mary has a sh had a shunt put in her head because of the massive brain bleed, when she was like four um, months yeah. old, she had a, I won't get into all that medical right. detail, just, but, but because just that a shunt head. actually drains the cerebral right. spinal fluid because of the bleed, it was all, all of the things that would it. do that. Or well, it because it her, itself her natural system otherwise. didn't yes. work anymore. Her ventricle system wasn't functioning yeah. because yeah. of the bleed, right? So the cerebral spinal fluid replaces itself three times a day in the human body. But it also has to be drained out because it's reproducing all the time. Well, with Mary, it was plugged, it couldn't drain. So her head would, would have exploded if they couldn't have done something. Right, so, they, so at first they put in what they call a Macomb's Reservoir. It was a little thing they had to take yeah. blood out each day. But is that something that they had to do that just at one time or is that something they had to do several times? Well, they had grows? to, just quickly, they had to do that with the, the Macomb's Reservoir until she was about five pounds. Then they put in the shunt. Okay, yeah. oh, I see. See, then yeah, the shunt lasted. The shunt lasted for, uh, I think, a year the first time, and then they replaced it. And then she went through a phase where, like, every six weeks or so, the shunt would start to go. And then they decided to do an operation called a ventriculoscopy, mm -hmm. where they were trying to. They thought there was some blockage between the ventricles in her brain because there's four different ventricles in the yes. brain. Without getting too technical, yes. anyway, they tried to. Uh, do this surgery. Clear that up, and they ended up. It was it was because of the way her brain bleed was. It was bent, and it went when they put that thing into the probe. Unplug it ended it, up hitting her brain stem. Brain stem, right. and then she ended up with infections for. for well, the, that year, she had thirteen surgeries. Yeah. Okay. So have you have you had moments where you think that? I mean, it's obviously she's loved. She's happy. Have you had times when you clearly know that she's suffering and that you would want her to stop suffering? Well, when she, that year, I call it the year from hell because we were in the How hospital. How old was she? She was three. Okay. And she was still little because she, 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 like when she even came home, she was only four pounds, 15 ounces. You know, she was always has tiny. She's still tiny. She won't. She hasn't grown. She's about 75 pounds, okay. four feet. Yes. She won't grow anymore. Mm -hmm. But anyway. Uh, that year was really bad because she, she had 
constant infections in her brain. Her temperature was at 41 Celsius. She did this crazy thing with her arms and legs, yeah. and, and it was really bad. It was really hard to see her uh, suffer through that. And I, I used to pray, you know, I, I used to pray, Lord, just take her home because it was so hard for me to watch her suffer. It was, you know, but at the same time, you know, when they finally, you know, got it under control, I mean, you know, and Mary kind of, but she was a fighter. She would fight through things that, mm. like even her doctors were shocked, the things that she survived, you know. Yeah. For some reason, God wanted her here, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Now, but, and, and. If I could just add a little yeah. bit to that, because my point of view is a little bit different. I, uh, I always prayed to the Lord, look, Lord, if this is what you want, just give me your grace, your strength, and I'll do whatever you ask. And, uh. I didn't hardly sleep for that whole time. That guy was working full time and I was staying at the hospital at night and Jerry would go during the day and I'd come home and do my job and then I'd go back at night and I'd stay overnight until Mary was, uh, and she would be awake most of the time because she was posturing and all that. And I, I don't really know. I only know that the Lord carried me for that whole time mm -hmm. because I should have got sick. I didn't hardly sleep. She, I would only sleep when she slept and I would just, and somehow I just didn't, I just, uh, it was really... Well, is it easy for you to understand a parents who maybe are not of faith or who do not have that attitude that is pro-life in moments of stress or, or grief that they would, if they were given that option to end it, that they would I want can, that? I can see that they may, because they wouldn't understand the gift that, that comes in faith. Mm -hmm. Like, I... I I personally couldn't do it. I couldn't even think Without about it. With, with, no, I mean, I couldn't take a life. I, don't th I think that was ingrained with me. Yeah, I, like I could have, children I, I, in even my though, family. you know, like I, I didn't like to see Mary suffer, I, I would have never have said to, to, to her doctor, like, give her something to, right, to you end know? it. Yeah, you know. This, think, even though you would have want the suffering to end, but not. I mean, at that point, it was just hard as a mother to watch her go through that, right? Mm. But at the same time, you know, you're. You know, and I, and I think I was stressed myself, right? Yeah, of course. You know, but, but uh, like I said, she went over it, got over it. To your point, though, I, I think it would be very difficult for someone. It, it amazes me how some people don't have faith and yet would struggle through and go on with that. Not that I'm giving them excuses, it's just that it, it gives you a reason for everything mm -hmm. with faith. Without it... I could see where people, and that's one of the scary things about this, is because to me, when you, with faith, it's easy to just move ahead and to say yes, and we'll accept this and we'll go with it. But without faith, what do you do after the decision's made and then you start to remorse? What do you do when you say, oh, gee, did I really make the right decision? This Death is more final than I thought. Yeah, well, yeah, you can't change See, these mind. are the things that, that, yeah. that they don't ask. Yeah. Have you heard people, uh, I'm sure you have because most parents with children with disabilities have make comments, passing comments about, you know, that poor child or anything like that? Well, like one, one day uh, when my son and I were walking home from Mass one morning and night, we had taken Mary and there was a couple guys at the bus stop as we walked by and, 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 and this man made this comment to his friend, you know, uh, oh, if I had a child like that, I'd get rid of her. And, I, and then Lukey says, did you hear that, Mom? And I says, yeah. I said that. It's just, I said it's sad because uh, they just don't know. They don't understand the joy that, you know, what Mary brings in our life. You know, and the, and the things that, 
you know, they don't know Mary. I mean, you're not valued for what you can do or, you know, like exactly. every day when I go into get Mary in the morning, when I go to get her ready, I mean, you should see the smile on her face and, and the joy in her eyes. Like it is beyond, um, I just feel like I look at God every day when I look at Mary because her, her love is so unconditional. I mean, it is, it's, it's absolutely as pure as you can get. And, and obviously, the, her value and her worth, as you said, is not based on what she can or cannot do. That's who she is. Would you, yeah, exactly. But her quality of life, how would you say that, how would you say that, that, that her, the quality of life that she has? I honestly... Or how would you respond to people who would challenge that and say, well, that's I, I not a quality of life that I could live with? I could say to you that I believe that Mary's probably the happiest one of our kids. She just some, loves her dad well, just and her mom, instance, she uh, just responds to us. It's amazing. Yeah. In fact, many people, many people, just as a witness with Mary, you can ask people at, at the pastoral center here where we come to mass, the joy they see with us and Mary is, yeah. is they compliment us about that all the time. But for me, it's like, well, that's just normal. Uh, another quick story about meeting someone. We went to Jasper with all of our kids one summer and we had Mary with us and we were strolling around like tourists, you know, and looking in the shops and different things. And this kid came up to us and he had actually had a skiing accident and he was a bit handicapped from it. And he just came up to us and started talking and sharing and just, you know, and he says, and then after we talked to him for a while and the kids all responded to him, it was a really beautiful day. And then he says, I knew I could come and talk to you. Once I saw her, I just mm -hmm. knew. So there's also the other the, the side other of side. that kind Absolutely. of thing. That's good to you know. Just the other day, when we were, I was at, when I went to Mass last Sunday, one of the parishioners, she says, well, how, how long does it take you to, you know, what time do you got to get up to get ready yes. for get married to Mass? And I says, well, we were there at 9. I said, well, I got up at 8. She says, really? I said, it doesn't take us that long to get married yeah. ready. But, and, she, and, she, and then right away, like she said, um, Oh, the poor, the poor dear, she made this kind of comment. And I said to her, you know, Mary's an angel. You know, she's not... Uh, I said, there are people that I know who have kids her age who have way more problems than I yes, have, who are perfectly able. normal yes, kids. Normal. And I, I'd rather not have their problems. Yeah. I mean, they're going yes. through some really serious issues, you know? Even with your other children, I mean, struggles of faith and things that come up with your, right. you know, with other, some of our other children. I mean that's not a worry for us with Mary. No, she's, she's just absolutely of God's child. So when the law, it, when, when, when they propose to change the law that allows for people with irremediable suffering, for example, I mean, it sounds like you would not think, you're not saying that Mary well, I has, wouldn't think of it. I absolutely wouldn't even, that's, I, I'll have she's to be dead suffering. before someone Her quality her. of life is based on the fact that she's a child of God and that she's loved and that she can love. Absolutely. Jean Vanier said that actually, that everybody has a right to, absolutely. to know that they're loved and that, to love someone. Um, but the thing that's scary for me, because a lot of things changed in Canada, it's nice to have health care, right? It is, it's a nice, it's a nice thing to have. Absolutely. But at the same time, whenever the government gives you a program, they start to tell you how to live in certain ways. Right. right? So seatbelt legislation, which I'm not against or anything. I'm just telling you these points. Seatbelt legislation or smoking things or increase of taxes of different, because healthcare is expensive and yes. you're ruining your life. So, so these are all things that give and take. It's the same thing with end of life, life issues. So what happens when they say to me and Jerry, well, you know what? Mary's got all these handicaps and her life isn't worth what someone else's life is. And so, hey, 
we're, we're just going to suggest maybe at first. Yeah. But you know the slippery slope. Look at how it changed from what the Supreme Court said to what the Parliamentary Committee said. Mm -hmm. The changes absolutely. in what they said was absolutely opposite. And we don't even have a law yet. Yeah, exactly. So these are things that, as a father who wants to protect his child, yeah. you put it in the back of your head and you think, absolutely. you know, maybe it won't happen to me because I'm, you know, but as time goes on, look what's happening in Belgium. Look what's yeah. happening in... Yeah. Well, even uh, when... Uh, I don't know if I should mention that, when Robert Latimer wheeled his daughter into the garage. I mean, you know, there were a lot of people who were willing, who, they even kind of had a campaign for a while there. If everyone would take a day of his prison term, you know, he wouldn't have to serve all this time. Like, it was like they, were, they felt sorry for him. Yes, because he did Tracy but, a favor. Yeah, you know, yes. and so people look at it like that instead of and that's like a what? Whole, yeah, but that's a whole other issue of consent because because Mary, your daughter, could not make that decision for herself. Yeah, but people then, if you, if this keeps going the way it you know could happen, then then it, they almost put the guilt trip on you, saying, "What are you, what are you burdening us?" Well, and if you were not there and she lived, she could live. 20, 30 more years? She could, right? And, you, and if you're not there, and she's at a point where someone else is having to make that decision, if the right safeguards are not in place, which I believe that they maybe can never be, then is that a concern for you as parents? As a parent, we do have, like, we have, we're very blessed with it. We have eight children, and, and we have at least two of them for sure, or maybe so more. But, that, but they, that, that would at least follow our wishes for Mary. Yes. They might not be able to take her into their home and look after her and, and things like that maybe, but they would be there to, you know, they would be the guardians of her. I'm sure they would take that. My, my brother and I, for example, my other, I have six brothers, but two of us are my brother Jim's guardian. When mom passed away, we went through that so that we knew what her wishes were for him and so we tried to follow that as best we can. Well, I guess, but some people could argue, but what if, what if her wishes are different than yours? Are you talking about Mary? Yes. Well, she would never be able to have expressed that. She See, would for never Mary, be able to express this it. is her life. Yes. She doesn't know anything different. It's kind of like Mary has this, uh, uh, what they call uh, uh, visual impairment. And I said to the doctor, well, how does Mary see? He says, well, I think she's, it's like she's, she's looking through a picket fence. Well, for Mary, that would be normal. She wouldn't know anything different. So her life is, is this life. She doesn't look at our she's other not kids and at, herself. Yeah, yeah, you know, and so, and, she, and she's very happy and, 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 and content. So, yeah. the thing about that question, though, that's important, I think, is that all of us, everyone can go through moments of depression or, or feel that this calls to end life is the, is the better route and stuff. And to me, that's a failure of us. That's a failure. That would be a failure for me as a father if my child felt that way. Yes. Because to me, there's no reason for them to feel that way, even in suffering, because there's so much you can do to, to alleviate that in our world today, especially, Absolutely. and also to be there for them, to care for them, and to let them know that's the failure of society more so than the person. Yeah. And I don't mean that in any way no, to, I understand to hurt someone's yeah, feelings absolutely. or anything, yeah. but really life is a gift. It's, it's a gift to be lived and, and, and death is final. Mm -hmm. You said something earlier about the, the, that made me think about the cost to the, to the medical system. Um, what is the cost? I mean, she needs a, a, a wheelchair, she needs a, a special van, uh, there are maybe medications. Is this 
the kind of thing that you're not getting support from the government? Or no. that you know what? That's one thing I would like to make clear here, especially for us in Alberta. Uh, as much as the world proclaims this idea of, so far anyway, what scares me is it could change because mm -hmm. of this kind of legislation. But really, we've had all kinds of things that I haven't even asked for that they've helped us with. Stuff that I felt was my responsibility as a father to provide, and yet the government has different programs that they. So you were you know, you've been able and, to and social fund workers help. have come and explained yeah. these different things. Yeah, I mean there so are certain things they'll fund, and there are certain things they won't fund. Like they don't fund a van with a wheelchair. That's no. something that you have to. But either, is there a concern you know, that, that at some point they might say, well, it is cheaper to end someone's life than it is to give all this money to this family to support this person with a disability? But then you're, you could put everybody in that category. We're all one one moment away from having a bad accident. Yes. Yeah, you know, and then absolutely. the next day, all of a sudden, is that you, you know? Absolutely. And I think, yeah, with this legislation, I think that there is a possibility that those kinds of decisions would be at least argued for. Yeah, absolutely. So. This is such a difficult conversation, but I mean, it's an important conversation. And, and the witness that you and Mary provide for other families if there's a family out there that is, that is watching, maybe with a child with a disability, maybe an adult with a disability that is going through periods of time of, that are difficult, that are, maybe they don't have the same resources in other provinces, or um, what would you like to tell them? Jerry. To always have hope, and, and you know, everybody's uh, situation is always different, you know, like every child, and. Like, I, I know even in my own life, I've thought of other people with other types of handicaps, and I thought, well, I think the Lord gave me what He knew I could handle, right? right. You know? And, uh, but, you know, always have hope and, and, and just reach out, if you can, to those people uh, um, that can help you. Like I said, we've never, that's never ever been an issue for us. So you would say that surrounding, your, making sure you have that support is important. Not just family, you have a lot of family, but community, church, and, well, faith. Well, yeah, and I think that though there are, there are always, like we ourselves don't, haven't gotten involved in a lot of the handicap groups, but some people might need that. And if they do need that, then they should look to that, you know? I think the biggest thing for me, what I would say to answer that question is, is that if you have someone who loves you, try to have, build that relationship and spend that time with them. Mm -hmm. But even more important, really, it doesn't matter what you're going through. If you start to love others the best you can from where you are, you will come out of that feeling happier and better and more fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And your life will have meaning no matter what. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what we're created for, mm -hmm. to love others. I, I, I love that you said that, and I would add and I'd love to meet Mary because I would add that she's also able to love. Absolutely. She's not just receiving love, but she's giving love. And, and that's maybe where, where the, her quality of life well, is. Well, she's a joy to me. I yeah. wouldn't give From the very her. beginning, even yes. when she was in that's, NICU, that's, that's... she never fussed. And uh, <laughs> like the, the nurses, they would go, oh, I got married today. Yes. Uh, but, you know, they told us that the babies whose parents sometimes these babies are flown in and their parents can't be there yes. you know and uh, but they said the babies that have their someone there with them they are the ones who respond the best mm -hmm. and why is that you know like that's a you know 
that, that, that there's a love thing there, like like invisible rays, hey? Absolutely, you know? love. That's good. That's a good good point to end with. Thank you very much, Chuck and Jerry. Um, and I'm going to say thank you to Mary. I wish again, I wish I'd get a chance to meet her. But um, thank you for sharing your story with us and for encouraging um, other people who might be in similar situations. That was a conversation I had with Chuck and Jerry Marple in Edmonton in April 2016. To watch this and other interviews on this topic, visit our website, saltandlighttv.org. Look for Catholic Focus. And at that website is also where you can find our series on euthanasia and assisted suicide titled Every Life Matters. Also on that website, you can find our award-winning film, Turning the Tide. Just go to saltandlighttv.org. Lots of resources on end-of-life issues. And remember that you can send me your comments via Facebook or Twitter at Deacon Pedro GM. Thanks for being with us. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been a special end-of-life issues edition of the Salt and Light Hour.